Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. It is January 27, 2016, here at the Nicholson Library with Howard Hinsdale. And Howard, we'd like to start our interviews off with a really tough question. Why wine? Well, I've uh, listened to your videos that you sent, so I knew that that was coming. (laughs) Um, Totally by chance, um, I got interested in wine when I was uh, with the Army Engineers in Fort Belvoir, Virginia, which as you may know is rather close to Washington, D.C. At the, at the University of Oregon, where I did my college work, I um, was in the geography program and one of the guests on sabbatical was a, a man who specialized in, uh, his name was Ed Marshulo, and uh, by the time I got into the Army Engineers, Ed was reassigned back with the Diplomatic Department in Washington, D.C., so uh, he had done several classes that I took at the University of Oregon the year there, and, and so when I got back there, I, I looked him up, and uh, so one evening he invited my wife and I over for dinner at his house and he served two bottles of wine which I had never my parents were not wine drinkers in those days the people were drinking mostly spirits and beer and mm-hmm. so on so uh, Ed had these wines on the table it just fascinated me and they were they turned out to be both Bordeaux wines uh, and uh, that started it. I just got fascinated with the uh, with the whole thing of wine. So we went back back on base and so on, and I started poking around uh, where a person buys wine. It's not hard to buy wine in in uh, in Washington, in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. and out in the surrounding area. So we went to uh, a drugstore called Dart Drug, which is a large chain back there. And that's all Blue Law State, so you, can't, you cannot buy wine on Sunday. <laughs> but they had a promotion going on a Saturday, and they had an empty box, carton, 12 places. And you could pick anything on their shelves, and the case of wine totaled $36. So it was all $3 a bottle and you could select. So <laughs> my wife and I went down the shelves and just pulled off things, you know, and that got us started. And then we, you know, explored with that and and then met other people at the, at Fort Belvoir who'd come stationed back to Belvoir and had been in Germany, of course. And, and so they came to dinner one night and they brought German wines, which was something, a totally new thing. 
my introduction to Riesling. <laughs> and uh, so it was, it was really through that that when I got back outdoor after I got out of the, out of the Army Engineers and got back to Oregon, I just had this interest in wine. And that led me to a man named John Henney. John Henney was, uh, he was a hybridizer, rhododendron hybridizer, actually the founder of the American Rhododendron Society. <laughs> and a person that my father had known from years before because my father got interested in rhododendrons uh, down on the Oregon coast where I grew up. And uh, so I heard the name John Henney and I thought, oh, I, I remember that man from the rhododendrons and contacted him and found out that he was doing wine classes in Woodburn, Oregon. <laughs> and. That would have been in 1970, yeah. And uh, that time I had gone to I had gone to work for Bohemia Lumber Company in Eugene, Oregon, and uh, which was a a company a timber company, obviously, in uh, uh, down south of Eugene, down where the Village Green is, uh, mm -hmm. and. Uh, my father was from, uh, my family was all from the shipping industry. And so my father's business was sand and gravel and later marine construction. And then it merged with Bohemia Lumber Company. So when I went to work for Bohemia Lumber Company, the only rule was is I couldn't work for my father's side of the business. I had to work in the timber part. So while I was doing that, living in Eugene, Oregon, we would drive up to Woodburn to take John Henney's classes on wine, which was a really fun thing. And at that time, it was all <coughs> really uh, oriented to the wines of Burgundy and the wines of Bordeaux, somewhat of the Loire Valley, but with a very a total French impact. It was all French wines at that time. And to, our, to one of our tastings came a man named Robert Druin. <laughs> so, and John had, had started a small, you would have called it a distribution company because he actually sold wines to like three outside sources and then the rest of the business was done by what they called dock sales and people interested you know, private parties who could come and buy wine from John as long as they bought <coughs> two and a half cases of product was the 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 uh, rule mm -hmm. which still exists today by the way uh, so through that interest and so on I um, continue with Bohemia Lumber Company, but John and I got to talking about the fact that he had no children who wanted to continue with his wine business. John was probably 67 at the time or something like that. And so um, we talked about going into business together. And I thought that was just a great idea. I mean, this was a this was an avocation thing that I thought fit perfectly. 
So I went to my father, and, and uh, who was, you know, the Bohemia, his side of Bohemia Lumber, and they still were not interested in letting me get involved in what was called the Umqua Division of Bohemia Lumber. And I, I said to Dad, I said, I'm really interested in, in pursuing this wine thing. And he said, well, I think it's a good idea for you because, you know, the situation is here what it is, and it'd be a good place for you to, you know, go out and get your feet wet, get in business. So that's how it all happened. And uh, I think it was in August of 1970 that I joined John, and we started the little company. And uh, so it just grew from there. It, initially, it was not what you'd call a distribution company. It was just a wholesale wine outlet. So John's business in, in, uh, in the wines of France came because of his association in the horticultural business. Because in the horticultural business, the name Rothschild is huge. Mm -hmm. If you go to England to the Kew Gardens or Exbury Gardens, those were all sponsored by the Rothschilds. The Rothschilds are also a big name in wine in Bordeaux. So that led that association from England and horticultural down to wines. And then once you're involved in wines, I mean, Kind of the first place you go is Burgundy, sure. and that led to the, the uh, where John actually had the wines of Joseph Drouin, which is who's mm -hmm. uh, Robert's grandfather, and uh, he had those wines in distribution, and uh, so that you know later days comes to a big association here in Oregon too, sure, sure. as you probably know. So I'm curious, before we move on, I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit about what a wine class was like and what his class was like. A, it was a, a simple format. Uh, we would taste five or six wines in an evening. And John would go through, he would, uh, it was subscribed by people interested in wine. Mm -hmm. Not so much wine dealers or wine retailers or anybody, you know, some of these people later became wine retailers just like I became a wine wholesaler. But uh, John would pick five or six wines for the evening and we would taste through them. He would talk about where they had come from. Uh, not, not like it is today where they talk about what grapes went into it, but more where it came from who the people were, say, that owned the chateau, if it was a Bordeaux, or if it was a Burgundy wine, you know, where that vineyard sat. Mm -hmm. We'd go into the history of how Burgundy, you know, became the way it was, uh, property owned by the church, and then uh, separated off by Napoleon, and, and all that history. All of that stuff fascinated me. I just, you know, totally loved going in and, and finding the history of how all these things happened and why a little property, a little acreage like Musigny is in, in Burgundy is 
owned by Robert Druin might have two rows of grapes in Musigny. And then, I don't know who else is there, Baron Thernard or the various other people. And they would make whatever they could make, <laughs> however many cases that turns out to be, and, you know, make that wine. And Bordeaux, of course, was their, their thing was their financial situation in Bordeaux wasn't strong. So the people, the, a lot of the financing of Bordeaux came out of England. That's where the money came from. Hmm. That's why there's quite a lot of English ownership there, including the Rothschilds. Mm -hmm. you know. So. Interesting. It's just fascinating history. Uh, an interesting way to learn about wine, and it gives you that kind of added depth of Tying it to the geography is ultimately so important because you find that the soil situations, the climate situations, and all of these things that contribute to the bottle that's sitting on your table. I mean, it comes there with this, this fascinating history. It's mm -hmm. not just a product, you know, that has nothing to say for itself. It just has its loaded with history and you know mm -hmm. thinking about Napoleon taking away the land from the church and I mean <laughs> that's very complex mm -hmm. so I got into well, tasting the wines and I discovered that that also was very fascinating to develop your skill to discern different flavors and then try to imagine or speculate or whatever it is as to why that is and knowing that next year it starts all over you know you start like clean slate mm -hmm. and, and you wait for that crop to come in and see what mother nature does to and how the winemakers respond to that and uh, make this product. Turned out that uh, Robert Drouin, uh, in those days, had his eye on, uh, he had his eye on the French government, and he had his eye on his children, um, thinking that he wanted to find another base for his children that they could operate from in case the things weren't as friendly with the French government as they'd been and, you know, just mm -hmm. to diversify. And he picked Oregon uh, as a place because of the, the uh, climate conditions, soil, that uh, they could produce Pinot Noir, mm -hmm. which is his primary thing, although they do Chardonnay as well. Mm -hmm in Burgundy. So then you started with John Henney in late 1970. So how did the business grow from there? When we, uh, when we joined John and he and I operated together for, you know, I don't remember the exact time frame, but for a couple of years and 
like I say, his his whole thing was imported wines. Well, um, I had been aware of the wines in Napa Valley also through probably that probably that case of wine that I bought at Dark Drugstore. <laughs> it probably had some Napa Valley wine in it too. And so when I joined John, we would drive to San Francisco to pick up imported wines because San Francisco is a, is a big port and a big user of imported wines. Mm -hmm. uh, and so many of the import companies had bases in the city. And we would go down there to shop from, from those people and then we would fill up our van with, which was, you would hold about a hundred cases, and drive down there, pick up the wine, drive back to Oregon to sell it. To, and that leads you right, basically right through Napa Valley. I mean, if you just sure. divert slightly. So uh, I suggested to John that we make an entry into Napa Valley and, and meet some people there. So we did that, and the first four people that we met in Napa Valley were Jack Davies, uh, Shramsburg Vineyards, mm -hmm. Champagne Works, uh, Chuck Carpey, Carpey family, uh, longtime wine producers, Fremark Abbey is their label. But the family had been, Chuck's father had been in wine production with the, with the Behringer family in they were all, you know, for years and years. Third guy was Joe Heights, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the fourth was Paul Draper. Paul Draper had a focus on Zinfandel at what was called Ridge Vineyards. Those uh, those labels are all still still around today. Mm -hmm. They're all still very highly thought of. So. We started our Napa Valley thing on the top end. <laughs> we didn't, you know, sure. and and that was and that was planned. Well, it was. I guess it was planned. I don't know. I'm trying to remember. I we met these people through Jack Davies, and I think that Jack had had. He'd had some contact with John Henney because John had bought some wine from him at some point at Transfer. Because that was our first visit was at transfer, and uh, so and that Jack recommended us to Chuck Carpey, his friend, and Joe Heights, mm -hmm. and Paul Draper came through a contact in San Francisco, who was doing imported wines at a company called Esquin, which is a long. I th think they might still be in business. I'm not sure about that. But that, that's, you know, it's, it's association of people. Mm -hmm. I mean, people say, well, see my friend mm -hmm. down the road, or, you know, he might be interested. So that's, that's how we got interested in Napa Valley. Uh, Oregon production, uh, that time it was just David Lett and Rich Summers at Hillcrest. And, uh, Dick Erath was just shortly behind that, but uh, David Lett used to come over to buy wine from John Henney. 
that's how we met him. I mean, he bought, he wanted to see, particularly he was buying Burgundy wines mm -hmm. to see what they were doing in Burgundy, and so on. And then when he had he had a little production, you know, available that you know could be for distribution, then he came back to us. So it, and then once David Lutt came to us, then his friend. Dick Erath came to us, and then Dick Bonzi, and we we kind of sat in a position that uh, we were getting, you know, all of the referrals mm -hmm. from the wine owners, the winery owners. Beautiful spot to sit in. <laughs> uh, Business-wise, it in those days the OLCC had distribution was done in a little bit different method and they had what they called zone pricing. So they had seven zones in the state of Oregon and you had to, if we wanted to sell a case of uh, Robert Drouin's Laferre, which is his like entry-level Chardonnay that he sells in Burgundy. Uh, and I still, I remember the price was $33 a case. Uh, different than today. <laughs> and so we would have to, we would post those prices and if we were going to sell it in Medford, we could sell it at a higher price because we could justify mm. the fact that we had a cost of moving that case uh, okay. to Medford. Or if we sold it in Portland, it could be a different price. And, and there were seven zones, I don't remember exactly how they broke out, but Eastern Oregon was certainly, mm -hmm. well, sure. the main part of the market was Willamette Valley. And so we always posted one price. But we, uh, the industry that was growing outside of people coming as dock sales. It started, John, John's business when I joined him was the Benson Hotel in mm -hmm. Portland. Mm -hmm. a fellow named, or a place called Anderson's Delicatessen, Vern Anderson. And um, I don't remember if there was one other place in Portland. There were, I mean, years, it was all starting to grow, but mm -hmm. it started there. And that came a fellow named George Gibson, who was a black man who was the maitre d' at the London Grill. George had grown up in, the, in New York in the railroad business. Mm -hmm. And he was a, he was a Pullman, uh, Pullman car maitre d'. And in those days, the railroad business was king. I mean, when they served a meal in a car, I mean, it was done to the nth degree. Well, George brought all that desire for good wines when he joined at the Benson Hotel, and he soon found John Henney, who had, was doing these wines. Sure. So that built that business there. Well, the point of that story is, is that the, the demand for wines then kind of grew with places like Salishan, who built their facility, uh, John Gray mm -hmm. built that facility, and they had this restaurant. Well, they 
they could do wine there. The people that stayed at Salishan were beginning to know about these things, and they're not only the imported wines, but the Napa Valley wines too. And then Sun River Lodge mm -hmm. came on, and then Black Butte Lodge came. All of those places pulled our little distribution company out to places around the state. The city of Ashland with the Shakespearean Festival, mm -hmm. that was a big pull for fine wines before anybody had vineyards planted down there. Mm -hmm. And some, uh, I remember one retailer uh, had a shop called the Cheshire Cat. And he came up from, I think, Oakland, California and started this retail shop with wine and cheese and wine. And mm -hmm. he just did very, very well because the people that went to the theater had been exposed to these things. Sure. Chateau Lynn restaurant that was down there uh, just recently closed, but they became a, a restaurateur that focused heavily on wines. So the as Oregon produced their Pinot Noir, we kind of sat in the seat because there was nobody else in the state committed to statewide distribution. Al Juicy Company in Portland had nice wines, and if you were in Portland, you could get them. Mm -hmm. But if you were in Lincoln City, you had to drive up to get them. You had to pick them up yourself. So by committing to statewide distribution, we sat in a pretty good, uh, pretty good position. The, uh, the wine, wine distribution got to be very interesting to me because I, I like the logistics, probably comes from Army engineers, sure. but I like the logistics of, of moving product and on time and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I got very interested in that and that, you know, we built this company based on that. Another thing happened in, in 1980, I believe it was, that the legislature told Safeway company that you can't do what they call central warehousing anymore okay. because you were you people that distributed uh, distributed products say in Eugene well they they go to the Safeway store and the Safeway store in Eugene and say no we get it all it all comes from the central warehouse in Portland and that was largely controlled by Al Giusti. Uh, so the product mix in Safeway was heavily skewed to Giusti type products. Sure. Well, when they when they decentralized, there was only one person doing statewide distribution, and uh, uh, that threw a tremendous amount of business into our lap. And by that time, uh, some of the other companies in Portland were starting to pick up on it. So uh, Greg Lemma uh, picked up on it and was doing, they were starting to go statewide. But we had, you know, we kind of sat in a position in Salem of being ideal geographically for statewide distribution because we were located just our warehouse was just off of I-5 with easy access and 
could take us to Bend or take us to mm -hmm. Southern Oregon or the coast or where we wanted sure. to go sure. uh, very efficiently. So when legislator did that, legislature did that, and then Safeway brought in a new man for marketing wines in their store, he picked up on the importance of Oregon wines and he insisted on an Oregon section. Interesting. In those stores, because I mean, you could see where this was going. And again, that we by default kind of landed there, but we had learned, we had learned how to do distribution in the meantime. And so, Distribution into a, a food store is is a different animal than distribution into the Benson Hotel. But mm -hmm. uh, sure. we sat in a good position because we had the product, we had the system for distribution, and and uh, just led us that direction. So you were there as the as the industry was, from, like you said, from its very beginning stages as it right. started to grow in Oregon. What was what was it like? Uh, what was the the kind of the market condition in, in Oregon, and how did you see it? You, you talked about places like Salishan and Black Butte and the Shakespeare Festival, and kind of the uh, the, 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 the the slow appetite for for fine wines and cheeses. What was it like in the in Oregon itself and the rest of the state in terms of trying to sell fine wine? Well, it was, I mean, the Eugene, Eugene market, uh, there was a fella, or a couple down there started a business called the Excelsior Cafe. They had, they had been, uh, Dell and Stephanie Pearl, uh, they had a big interest in learning about wine because they had professors from the University of Oregon who had bought wine from John Henney and so they would say gee you ought to you ought to see John Henney you ought to find out about you know this wine or that mm -hmm. wine and so on so Dell and Ste I remember the day that Dell and Stephanie came up and uh, it was you know they were uh, in those days the you know the so-called hippie movement was fairly fairly live and, and Dell and Stephanie were really part of that culture but they recognized what good food was. Stephanie um, an exceptional baker and and she you know responsible really for that Metropole Baking Company mm -hmm. down in Eugene mm. which is a Mm -hmm. This is a great place. Not so good for your waistline, but it's good. <laughs> uh, and so they were offering these things at, at Excelsior Cafe. And there was, uh, there was a time when Excelsior Cafe was the number one account for wine in Oregon. Wow. For a number of years. I don't know how many, but I'm going to say five or six anyway. Wow. But other people saw what they were doing and they opened other cafes and, and people who had worked with them, uh, Dell and Stephanie split off and they'd start their own little spot, you know. Uh, and it, 
it just grew from there. Did you find the, con the, the consumers were quick to, quick to enjoy the wine? You talk about the, the business growing um, in Eugene. Um, what was the consumer behavior like as they came around toward fine wine and Oregon wine? There's a, there's a tremendous, uh, tremendous following for fine wines in the, uh, here in Oregon. Um, part of that is influenced by, you know, maybe the college professors, uh, attorneys who get interested in this. Mm -hmm. It's such a fascinating thing that, uh, you know, the whole history of wine, I think that attracts a lot of, of uh, attorneys because they, you know, they're usually pretty worldly and, and get, this was a, this industry for Oregon was, Oregon was in those days heavily timber oriented. Mm -hmm. This was an industry that was growing in could you know take a do a, make a contribution something like timber did that industry also attracts tourists mm -hmm. tourist a tourist is the fastest way to input capital into an economy because he comes in and they stay in a facility, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a nice place to stay, uh, whether it be a bed and breakfast or whether it be the Valley River Inn or whatever place it is or the, all the way to, you know, the, the place in Newburgh that... Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, the... Is it Avalon? I can't remember the name. I know which one you mean. Uh, Allison. Allison Inn, yes, that's yeah. the one. And, I mean, you see that investment, that's all because of wine and tourism. Mm -hmm. And anyway, the tourist comes to town and he spends some money at, at I should certainly mention Nick's mm -hmm. in McMinnville, because one of the very early guys in the, was Nick uh, mm -hmm. in the restaurant business. Mm -hmm. And he, of course, Nick was right here in town and knew David Latin, Dickie Rath, and all of the, all the local guys were there, so that, but the tourist comes to town and he goes to Nick's and spends some dollars there. He goes to the gift shop, he spends some dollars and he tours around and enjoys the environmental beauty of Oregon. It's a beautiful way to enhance this state economically. Mm -hmm. And so people glommed on to glommed onto whether they be local people or visiting people, they just glommed onto the wines. They can't wait to, you know, find out what's going on at out at Yamhill Valley Vineyards or Panther Creek or wherever, you know, they'll mm -hmm. they go out and search these places out and find the wines. Speaking of Yamhill Valley Vineyards, we did an interview with Stephen Carey not long ago. And he mentioned how you had brought him into the wine business. Um, and we're, so we're kind of curious, in addition to Stephen and Robert Drouin and, and the, some of the relationships you built with some of the early Oregon wine folks, uh, and how those came about and what, what it was like being here. Well, Stephen, Stephen and I worked together for a number of years. 
in the distribution business. We got interested in wines kind of together when I got back from when I got back from the army and I was working at Bohemia Lumber. We were both from Reachport, Oregon. Okay. And actually, Stephen's father, Leo, and my father worked together in the in the timber business. Uh, so the family association was there from the time we were little kids. You know, we had Christmas together and this sort of thing. And and uh, so when I got on this kick, and it really started, it really started with the with the German wines because I I really liked that Riesling, and uh, and I'd pick up wines from John Henney through the dock sale before we became business partners and take it back down to Reesport and we'd get together and drink wine. <laughs> and God, it really tasted good. <laughs> you know, it's just, well then it, I mean, it's just, it's kind of serendipitous that all of a sudden, wow, Oregon's a place that we can produce this. We can produce Pinot Noir, we can produce Riesling, we can produce Chardonnay, we can be produce, I mean, David Lett almost single-handedly introduced Pinot Gris to the U.S. I mean, it would have been grown in, in Alsace mm -hmm. and so on, but nobody knew what it was here. And so he experimented with that and, and all of a sudden now, that I, I would assume that Pinot Gris is the number one, well, it might be Riesling, the number one Oregon selling white wine. I'm not sure how that, how those That'd numbers be one of the out. two, yeah. And Riesling, of course, is, is always a favorite because people have a tendency to say, oh, I don't like sweet wine. <laughs> but if you put a tasting down, the first bottle that'll get consumed will be, always be the Riesling. It'll be the one that goes away quickest, which tells me that that's what they like. <laughs> you know? uh, and Riesling does very well here. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's, it's just a, it's a fascinating thing. I, I'm, the other fellows from Oregon, I mean, that worked in the distribution business, I mean, I think Stephen's the, Stephen's the only one that went into commercial production of wine that I know of. Uh, other fellows that worked with me went on into other facets of representing wineries, selling wine uh, for national companies, or I, d I don't remember if anybody else went into the into the winemaking mm -hmm. side like Stephen did, but a, a lot of uh, then people like uh, you know well David Latt, Dick Erath, Dick Ponzi, uh, Bob McGritchie. A lot of those guys came out of Southern California in the aviation or aerospace industry. I don't know what industry there, but they were they were guys I think that were, you know, saying, 
gee, this population thing is getting to me down here. I'm going to go to Oregon and do something totally different. And they were probably just like me. They just got fascinated with wine, but went into the into the growing end of it, mm -hmm. the agricultural end. How did you build a relationship with uh, the kind of the early Oregon winemakers as you were distributing their wines? I was just a really their distributor, although I have, uh, you know, I, I've developed my skills at tasting wines, I mean, and, and evaluating them, uh, which is something you have to do in the wholesale business. Mm -hmm. uh, one of those nasty jobs you got to put up with. <laughs> and. Uh, so I would get asked to, you know, come and taste product and, you know, help evaluate it and so on. And I, I still do that. I mean, I still like doing that, although I'm, I'm totally out of the industry now. I mean, as far as in my distribution, I sold that business and then, uh, then I had a, uh, a, uh, restaurant and wine bar in Silverton, Oregon rather recently and I just sold that. I just retired on in October of 2015. Speaking of that, I was gonna, just going to ask you about that. Tell me a little bit about the transition, the deciding to sell the distribution and then and moving into the, the restaurant winery business. Well, if you get interested in wines, you get interested in foods or one where maybe they're which way it was, I'm not sure. Uh, I was always interested in foods because my mother was interested in foods. And we lived in Reedsport, which is, and we lived out in the country. So growing up, didn't have television, didn't have distractions of that. And one of the things that mother always did was she would, you know, always shop fresh foods. It was just kind of the way we grew up. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she, I mean, watching her, I mean, she made her own bread and, and so on. And just watching her, I mean, I can remember, you know, as a little kid, I was assigned to turning the crank on the, on the bread kneader <laughs> thing. So was, you, know, you just have this exposure and you see this creative side of all this. It always, I mean, always enjoyed it. I never, I never knew what uh, until I went to grade school that there was such a thing as you could go to the counter and, and buy this loaf of bread, which <laughs> in those days Williams Bakery in in Eugene kind of dominated the market, at least in our market on the coast, and they had this thing called bread. But it had no similarity to what mother made. <laughs> and I remember going to, uh, going to school and take my lunch and getting ridiculed by the other kids. They say, what is the matter with your bread? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, it's all exposure to that and, and then becoming interested in it. And, Food, you know, and then you get into the wine business, and and you go to France, and and you know, go on some of these vineyard tours, and then they take you to lunch. I mean, you'll see something like you've never seen in your life before coming to the table in terms of 
culinary exquisite, mm-hmm. exquisite food. And that's true in France, it's true in Italy, it's true, all, it's true in the U.S. now. But all of those, I mean, I think, I think the culinary business, I mean, got a lot of its base from the wine industry. I think that's the way that worked. I'm not sure. I mean, in New York City, probably where they had an importation of people coming to this country, Italian origin chefs and French chefs and so on, they probably brought the wines and taught taught the New York market about foods that they're doing and oh yes, here we have these wines too. The the New York uh, affiliation for Oregon wines, which was largely established by Stephen Carey, because he would get in his car and load that his his uh, 240Z <laughs> Datsun up with I don't know it would hold 12 cases of wine or something, and he'd take off and drive to New York City and say, "Hey, sit down with me." And he's got the personality to do that. Sit down with me. Let me show you what we're doing in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And he was successful at that. But probably, I don't know if I'm right on that. In San Francisco area, certainly there would have been a lot of chefs that came to town, and then, but then they they met the production that was going on in Napa Valley, and and. Uh, that all enhance that. Kind of grows up together. Yeah, they grow up together. But here, I mean, I, I would think in, in Oregon, it's uh, the, the Oregon wine industry has led a lot of peop, culinary people mm-hmm. to come north mm-hmm. to establish mm-hmm. what they're doing. So, um, when you purchased the coffee house, what was your goal? I purchased the coffee house because he had a wine license. I wanted to, I wanted to put a little, a wine bar in a building that uh, my wife and I own in Silverton, in which she's got her, she's in the real estate business. And uh, we thought, well, we would take a section of this office and we had, there's one section that sits on Silver Creek mm-hmm. with an access to the street, uh, separate access, which you have to have. And, cause you can't take it through another business or that was the law in those days. Um, so we, we went to the OLCC and, and well, no, the OLCC said we could do it. The city of Silverton said, wait a minute, it's a change of use. You're changing a real estate office into a wine bar. This is a change of use. And because it's a change of use, we're going to require you to put in two ADA bathrooms of a specified size. And at that time, that was 2004, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And the, the ADA requirements on the, on the, was separate bathrooms, men and women's, and they had to be so large, 
larger than what they are now. Now they've come down to the five foot circle so you can turn the wheel of chair around, but before that they had it they had it specified by the outline of the bathroom and it was quite a lot larger. Well it didn't it would have taken forty forty five percent of our total square footage that we were going to do to put into these bathrooms. Mm -hmm. So it, it didn't make any sense economically to do that. So we said, no, we won't do that. Well, then I, the fellow that had the coffee shop, uh, he said, well, I have a wine license. Hmm. <laughs> so I said, well, and he was wanting to sell his business. So I said, well, there it is. We'll buy the coffee shop really for the wine license and do the coffee on the side. So that's what we did. And because he was an existing business, they didn't have, they weren't requiring him to do the ADA bathrooms. Sure. So it was kind of a loophole situation, but it allowed us to get started in that. And that, I really enjoyed that. I mean, the, the wine bar thing was, was fun to do. And then my, my wife's son, uh, Kevin Cobb, uh, is from the food industry up in Portland. He worked with Ron Paul. Uh, he worked. He worked with the Red Lion. He's worked with the uh, uh, Carol Miko Restaurant, uh, one of the long-standing from the '40s restaurants in Portland. And he had some restaurant management experience and also food preparation. So he said, "Well." Maybe I'll come back from Portland. He grew up in Salem. He said, maybe I'll come back from Portland and, you know, maybe we decided we'd join forces and he would do the food side and I'd do the wine side. So we grew that business up and then that's the one that we recently sold. Mm -hmm. But that's a lot of fun. Food preparation's a lot of fun. Although we're not, you know, we're not uh, chef trained as such <laughs> but I still know how to pick out a ripe avocado <laughs> not that difficult and and now you've sold and transitioned out so so what is it like not being in the wine business well it's fine uh, I I mean I still now I can I can enjoy wine the way I did before I made it a business uh, which is, you know, the sitting down or tasting wines. I still get asked to, you know, evaluate wines by the people who bought my business mm -hmm. and some others and so on. Um, and I'll still stay involved in that. But from just the enjoyment of it, you know. I took a group of people up to uh, Walla Walla last uh, last June. People who not they they'd been to Walla Walla, but they didn't they didn't have access to some of the vineyards up there that mm -hmm. because of my business associations I had access to, and uh, they really enjoyed that experience. We had a lot of fun, and. Some of those people have come back and said, why don't you organize us to go somewhere else? 
and maybe that might lead might lead back to Europe because I do have a lot of contacts still. That's where the origin was for us. So, and I've done several tours here in the local area for people that are business people who have you know from their head office people coming. They had a group, Ofa Electric, mm -hmm. uh, had a group there. They have a an associate office in Germany, and so those people came over and and uh, Les called me and said, "Would you?" take us all on a tour to the Oregon Lines because they'd like to see, you know, they'd like to see some of this. So I get called on to do that and that's fun. It's a nice skill to have. Yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really nice. And my wife and I would want to, you know, travel. Uh, so those two can tie together pretty nicely. <laughs> yeah. So what, <clears throat> excuse me, what makes Oregon wine different or special from, from uh, elsewhere and, and how would you recommend Oregon, what, what, would the, what could the industry do to continue to enhance its reputation? Well, Oregon is, uh, it turns out, and this was confirmed by Robert Duran when he came up here, that uh, Pinot Noir probably is you know, maybe some of the winemakers are going to jump on all of me for saying this, but is probably the most specialized wine I know of in terms of making it, growing it successfully. Uh, the and when you find an area that uh, is climatically and agriculturally right. For Pinot Noir, the the people from Burgundy, as you see recently, I mean, are kind of jumping on this because, well, Robert started it, but the people from Louis Jadot have followed rather recently mm -hmm. in a big purchase here. Uh, Madame Bislois, who's uh, Domaine della Romani Conti, uh, I hosted her here looking at property in Oregon, 1975. <laughs> I don't think they ultimately, I don't, they didn't ultimately make an investment. I don't know if they did outside, if they went to California or what they did. Uh, but Oregon is unique, particularly in the Willamette Valley, although the Interestingly enough, when Robert was here and still looking, they hadn't picked property yet, but they were, he was here actually looking for property. And he stayed at our home in, in Salem. And so we, and we were taking him around to look at properties here and around. And so we devised a blind tasting Stephen Carey was there. <laughs> and we brown bagged a bottle of Pinot Noir and Robert said, I think that wine came from Montelie, which is one of the vineyards in Burgundy. It turned out to be the 1967 
Pinot Noir from Hillcrest Vineyards <laughs> in Roseburg, mm -hmm. which really confirmed his belief that he could get that flavor he was looking for in this region. That, that bottle of wine, and I may be, I may be mistaken on the vineyard, it, it might have been 69. Anyway, I still have one bottle of it to go. And it's probably over the hill by now, but it's, <laughs> it's now, it's, it's kind of like a collector's piece to sure. think, you know, this, that particular wine had an influence on, on this business that's developed here. And I'm, I'm nuts for history. I mean, I just, I just love that track and that, why people make, that comes from geography, by the way. Mm -hmm. If you get involved in the study of geography, which I'm a big advocate of, why people <coughs> move to certain areas of the earth and move around or move within, within a city and urban geography is another part of it. But the agricultural geography is, is fascinating and mm -hmm. so that particular wine had a big place in Oregon it's incredible and so um, most of the most of the other people I've met I mean were probably people just because of their I mean Oregon winemakers or people that either I did distribution for or met because we were all in the same industry because the industry here is is as it should be very cooperative among themselves at enhancing what the next guy is doing even though he's a competitor supposedly but what happens is if, if Joe does well at his little vineyard and Frank does well at his little vineyard. The tourists come to Oregon to see what Joe, both Joe and Frank are doing. Mm -hmm. It enhances everybody. Mm -hmm. That's why I go back to that, you know, the power of, of tourism is huge in developing an economy. You see, you've seen the industry grow up from the very beginning. In addition to size, pure, pure size, what are the other big changes you've noticed in Oregon? Well, I mean, the, the word size takes in a lot. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it's size of production, size of uh, plantings, and so on. Uh, the mechanization is, is a function of, of size or production, increasing capacity, and so on. Um, it's interesting that there are, I guess for history people, I mean, you, you like to see, you like to see mechanization for, from a, I guess an economic point of view that you can make more of it and your sales will go up. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, the other piece of that is, does your quality suffer because of it? Sure. And I would say, yes, it can. Uh, I've seen the growth of, uh, like, Behringer Vineyards in 
in Napa Valley. I knew their wines from before they, before Nestle chocolate bought them. <laughs> uh, and they make some lovely wines. But the, I guess I should say the pressure of once you've mechanized, then you have committed yourself financially to a level of sales that you have to achieve to pay for this stuff that you bought, and it's not cheap, hugely expensive. And so you get to these, uh, um, I can't think what they call that term in uh, economics, uh, is level of production is part of it, but it's, it's like uh, financial break-even points. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you're committed financially. Now you've got to, you've got to put that product out there. And along comes Mother Nature and gives you a 2013 vintage. And you have to deal with that. But you may not be able to, may not work. Sure. Numbers wise. So uh, over, over commitment in the mechanizing process can, can be, is something that I worry about. So I, I, I find myself being attracted to the, the smaller guys, mm -hmm. just because maybe that's just the history point of view. Uh, Robert Drouin in, in Burgundy, uh, he still makes a small amount of wine by the old methods, which means stomp on the grapes, the old huge basket press, the thing is mm -hmm. eight feet across, I would judge. And he makes a certain amount of wine just to keep everybody in his production aware of what goes on in sure. winemaking. Because they don't have this, at that level you don't have the You've got to control oxidation naturally. You can't do it with uh, all the toys. Sure. So, what, what do you see the? What else do you see about the, the kind of the future of Oregon wine? Where do you see it going? Well, I'm hopeful it it continues. I think it. I think it certainly will. It. It. There's. I don't know how many Oregon wineries now. When I started, there were two. Little now over, there's over 600. Over over 700 is the over last. Over 700. Year. That's. I mean that's. That's like. Uh, maybe that's more growth than. Certainly more than we expected. <laughs> uh, but the the people who insist on doing a quality job will be successful because that's what it all balances out to economically, almost in, in any industry I can think of. Uh, it, if you focus on quality, there are people out there and people will find you in, in the word of mouth reputation. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the advertising industry that comes along with the, when the production gets high. And when Nestle took over Behringer, I think that was 
I think it was 75 or so. And they hired people from Procter & Gamble because they were going to build this winery and they knew they had to have people that knew how to sell a product. Sure. And Procter & Gamble, I don't know if it's still number one, but in those days it's number one. Sure. And they're still very close to number one. I mean, they knew how to market, they knew how to advertise, they knew how to sell. And so when they, when Behringer came our direction, and Behringer came our direction because we were the statewide distributor. Sure. And so we ended up, you know, just fortuitously, we ended up, uh, you know, taking on Behringer and Mondavi and, <laughs> and Glen Ellen and all, all these big guys, not the big guys like Gallo, because they were established, but uh, it changed our business hugely. Sure. I mean, we had, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, John and I started in 1970 with two of us. And when I sold the company to uh, uh, Ed Miletus in 93, I think it was, uh, we had 65 people. That's amazing. And we had trucks going <laughs> all directions. My job cho changed totally. I didn't do anything with, I wasn't doing anything in those days, I was doing keeping trucks on the road. I mm -hmm. mean, I was still involved in selecting products, but you don't do as much selecting then because when the big guys come to you and say, hey, we've got this, you know, sure. we got this new hot Cabernet that we're doing and you're gonna take, uh, your portion is 300 cases or whatever it is. You mm -hmm. know? So go out and sell it. So it's just like then, okay, the, the emphasis is not really on what's in the bottle, it's, it's how well it's packaged and can you get it to that Safeway store on time mm -hmm. and so on, uh, change the nature of the business. But Amazing. so back to what I hope for Oregon, I hope that the, that the little guys or the smaller producers uh, and, and the larger producers who've focused on quality because most of them here have. Mm -hmm. They're they're very focused on quality. Mm -hmm. uh, and they will keep that focus. It will it will keep people interested in what's going on here wine wise. I mean you don't I don't think you see as many people flooding Modesto, California to see what uh, Gallows are doing. And the Gallows are very good wine producers. I mean, they're, they're the best production and mass production and distribution company going. Sure. You can take a lot from Ernest Gallo. And Ernest Gallo, uh, I never met Ernest, and I never met Julie and his brother either, but Ernest was the guy out on the streets, and what he would do is he'd take his hand truck into San Francisco with his however many cases of Gallo, and he'd go and he'd talk to the guys that were, you know, the restaurant that was pouring it, shake their hand. I'm Ernest Gallo. I'm bringing you your wine. That's powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that really is what 
gets people in your camp as far as buying your product. Sure. Yeah. So what was one of the most important things you learned, or from another way of looking at it, if you had one thing to do over again, what would, what would it be? I mean, the most important thing in business, whether it's wine business or lumber business or restaurant business, wherever you are, is your customer and making, making your product available to him so that he can use, use that product and uh, if it's a reseller like a retail store, you get it to him, you get it in the spot it's supposed to be in his store. Uh, focus on customers. Same thing with a restaurant. You make sure that that customer is comfortable mm -hmm. in your place. They're relaxed because that's what that's the reason they will come back. They will come back if they if you treat them nicely, uh, greet them, mm -hmm. uh, be friendly with them. You don't have to hover over their table which some of the system restaurants always, you know, hi, mm -hmm. my name is Joe and mm -hmm. I'm going to be your waiter and I'm going to, you know, some of that can be too much, but, but you have to have an eye towards what their needs are, uh, what, they, what they respond to, what they, you know, if, if they're a repeat customer, you need to remember that they like their steak medium rare. Mm -hmm. uh, all that, so customer, Customer awareness, I guess, is to me the most important thing in, in business. Did you find that that was a natural thing for you, or did you have to really hone that? That's, that's something that, that I got as a little boy. Uh, and I worked uh, my, my uh, fellow who lived up the road for us, you know, taught my brother and I, you know, a lot of skills in fishing and hunting and that sort of stuff. And then, uh, uh, then subsequently I met a fellow named Prince Helfrich, who was well known in the guiding business uh, outside on the Mackenzie River. Mm -hmm. Prince is deceased now, but I, I went to work for him when I was uh, 12 years old. And he gave uh, the things I mean, I look back at that time with Prince and, and what did he do for me? I mean, he, you had to be on time. You had to, there were certain things that you had to do uh, personally to ever get in a position to be, that he would ask you to work for him. And then when he asked you to work for him, he gave you responsibility. And he gave me the responsibility of his 11 horses, <laughs> which we, we ran a boys camp, or he ran a boys camp, uh, up in the, in the Cascade Mountains. And we would take uh, boys from, well, they were all over the 
West Coast. They would come to go to Prince's Camp for two weeks, take them up and teach fishing and, and cooking and being in the wilderness, respect of the wilderness, and mm -hmm. all of these things that we, uh, you hear about today. Prince was doing that back in the 50s and teaching conservation of timber and all of these things and showing you where the seeds were and mm -hmm. of the trees and how to how to you know make a camp and you never left a footprint or any of that well he gave me the responsibility and we held all our product in on the horses and at 12 years old he gave me the responsibility of these horses and it just somehow struck me that I mean horses that's they're a big investment it's a big investment and he turned this over. I mean, he didn't turn me totally loose with it. He was giving me guidance, but I had to make sure all that equipment was taken care of, that the horses were fed on time and, and grazed, and mm -hmm. all that was given to me at 12 years old. I learned a lot. That probably, that experience probably taught me the most about uh, job responsibility. And today, in hiring people, it's not so easy. It's not so easy to find younger people who will accept responsibility. Uh, I frustrated sometimes. I think they often want to avoid it. And I listen to, I never had children myself, but I listen to parents and then they're raising their kids and talking, talking about what it's like and the kids are teenagers and they can't, they can't get them to track on anything and I thought, yeah, I know something about that, <laughs> hiring, hiring people. But, sure, sure. Uh, That's all the formal questions I have for you. Is there anything that I should have asked that I didn't? Anything else you'd like to add? Um, I appreciate the opportunity, number one. Okay, great. I respect this, the Oregon wine business tremendously. It's, uh, it's brought me a lot of joy. I have, in the wine business in general, I have met some absolutely incredible people and I have this, uh, <clears throat> I have this theory that some, some of it comes from the geography background and, and it's confirmed by people in the wine industry uh, and that is all those people are agricultural people. Not the not the sales people so much and Procter and Gamble people. They I mean I had good friends who were in that part of it, but they're not the ones that taught me how important that land is where mm -hmm. where you're grapes are coming from or where my family is living and my parents who who maybe they inherited the land from and they grew up there they grew up on that farm helping their dad tend those grapes and in the case of Europe I mean because mm -hmm. the vines sure. go back that far uh, I have a tremendous respect for land and how people treat it what they can, what they can do with it, and so.
Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time and, and, you. and your stories. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.